0: and welcome to Unprecedential, an AEI podcast on American constitutionalism. I'm your host, AEI resident scholar, Adam White. As some of you may know, one of the major themes of this podcast and of my work at AEI is on American constitutionalism beyond the four walls of the Supreme Court, hence the name, Unprecedential, as in not limiting ourselves to just discussion of Supreme Court precedents. And in recent years, Some of the most interesting constitutional debates have focused on Congress, on what a constitutional Congress should do, and how it should go about doing its work. And happily, we're joined today by one of the very best experts on the subject. Josh Chaffetz is a professor of law at Cornell Law School, and this year he's been a visiting professor at Georgetown Law. He's rare among law professors in that he focuses primarily on Congress rather than the courts. In 2007, he published his first book titled democracy's privileged few, legislative privilege and democratic norms in the British and American constitutions. More recently, in 2017, he published another book that I highly recommend, Congress's Constitution, Legislative Authority, and Separation of Powers. Josh, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Adam.
0: Let's start at the very basics. What's Congress's constitutional role?
1: Well, so Congress is described in Article 1 of the Constitution, and that's for a reason. It was understood in some sense to be uh, the first among equals. In the immediate aftermath of the American Revolution, when the the states went about drafting their uh, new Republican constitutions, a lot of them created very powerful legislatures. Uh, in, In many cases, legislatures that appointed the governor directly from the legislature, things like that by the sort of end of the uh, the middle of the 1780s, that was understood to have perhaps gone a little bit too far. Uh, so the constitution creates the sort of tripartite structure we know today, right? Uh, legislature, executive, judiciary, each with its own sort of independent power base in some sense, but with Congress still very much uh, first for a reason. It was understood to be the organ that would set policy, that would set the direction of the state.
0: The framers put Congress first it was the most important branch but in some ways they feared it as the most dangerous branch right
1: yeah they were concerned that it might overtake the workings of the other two uh, and they were concerned uh, of course that it might invade the, the liberties of uh, of the american citizens as well
0: so we separate powers and then we separate congress itself into two branches so we have some structural limits on it but it's still intended to be the engine the prime mover of our constitutional democracy now in your book which again i highly recommend it's a great book you walk through not just Congress's main sort of what we think of as legislative power, but you you focus especially on some of the powers of Congress that might normally be overlooked. I just have a list of them here. Power of the purse, power of personnel, which is to say the appointment of officers, right, in the executive branch and elsewhere, judges. Congress's contempt power, Congress's own power of speech or debate, the limits of punishing a member of Congress for what they say during debate, which of course was the subject of your first book. Power of internal discipline, the power to discipline Congress's own members, and then Congress's power to set the rules of its own proceedings. It's a fascinating book. What was the origin of it? What, what spurred you to look at these parts of, of Congress?
1: So I'd been working on legislative procedure really since I was a grad student. It wound up being the topic of my dissertation and then of my first book. And those were really uh, sort of more internally looking projects. So it was about how Congress goes about sort of creating and regulating its own procedures. Um, But I started, the more I thought about that, the more I realized that a lot of Congress's power as against the other branches, that is to say, a lot of the way that it structures separation of powers conflicts actually involves its own procedures. It doesn't really involve, for the most part, legislation passed by Congress. It, It involves all the other little congressional powers that turn out to be not so little that turn out to have uh, consequences beyond what you would think from just looking at the text or even from just looking at how those those powers work as an internal matter
0: now I've, I forgot my copy of uh, the federal stuff in my office but I do recall at one point James Madison says he, he singles out the power of the purse and he says the power of the purse is uh, how do you put it the people's most effectual tool for resisting the, the overgrown prerogatives of other parts of government right. today the power of the purse is used in sort of a it's used in a way that it is, seems at odds with what the framers might have intended. We have sort of a single up or down vote on a budget. It's a, a showdown. It seems detached from any kind of policy debates. Right? It's not really connected to congressional oversight, to Congress's sort of statutory delegations of power. It becomes sort of an all or nothing showdown over the over the annual budget, in a way that I think seems to favor the president. But all that aside. What do you make of the way Congress goes about exercising the power of the purse now and to what extent is it consistent with what the framers had hoped and to what extent is it a departure?
1: Well, I think, you know, Congress does more with its appropriations power than than it might look like. You know, there is uh, appropriations bills are, you know, immensely detailed and and often adjust the appropriations for for a department, a, a part of a department, in ways that are intended to send a message, often contain, you know, appropriations riders that are intended to uh, send a message or to, you know, shut something down entirely, or conversely, to to sort of fund something at a high level to express approbation of, of what that part of the, the government is doing. So th- there is a sort of fine-grained way in which appropriations bills are used. There's an even more fine-grained way in which people in the executive branch who are flouting the will of Congress, or more specifically, the will of the appropriators, people on the appropriations committees and the relevant subcommittees, find themselves sort of hauled in before those committees and, and grilled in a way that makes it clear that, hey, maybe they should sort of do what Congress wants, because if they don't, they're likely to find appropriations used as a tool. So it often, you know, uh, there's sort of bargaining between the branches that happens in the shadow of the appropriations power that often happens sort of out of sight of the public. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a sizable body of political science literature that shows that Lots of the bureaucracy really is quite responsive to the preferences of the Appropriations Committee. That is to say that Congress does manage to use it to exercise some measure of control. That said, I think it's sort of unhealthy that in recent years we've moved more and more towards appropriations through omnibus continuing resolutions rather than passing this whole suite of annual appropriations bills. And that, I think, is an unhealthy development because it reduces the ability to use these tools in in relatively fine-grained ways. You mentioned just a moment ago appropriations riders. Is that, is that earmarks? So earmarks, uh, they're, they're closely related. Earmarks sort of direct you to spend money in a certain way. Ryder forbids you from spending money in a certain way.
0: In the last few years, earmarks really fell out of favor, large, I think largely due to Republican criticism that earmarks were either Congress micromanaging the executive or they were an ex, you know an opportunity for Congress to create pork, to log roll, to build bridges to nowhere. By doing away with earmarks, there was something lost in terms of Absolutely. congressional oversight. What do you make of that?
1: Yeah, so earmarks have been, as an official matter, uh, banned by the House for uh, for going on a decade now. And as I say, I say as a, as an official matter, because there are some ways you can sneak some of them back in, but what that effectively does right it doesn't uh it doesn't decrease overall spending what it does is shift where that spending is decided so it shifts it from congress to the executive branch uh it says and and most of those decisions were always made in the executive branch earmarks were always a very very small percentage of the total uh, amount appropriated but they were a way that members could uh express sort of very particular policy preferences and now all of those decisions or a lot more of those decisions anyway are made in the executive branch it also made it Harder to strike deals in Congress because um, members care about expenditures in their districts, and so it gave them sort of small chips that they could trade with each other, um, and that facilitated the passage of larger bills. Without those, it, it turns out to be harder to build the sort of coalition that you need for for uh, passing significant legislation. So I think it has sort of two deleterious effects: it, it both shifts power to the executive and it makes deals harder to strike in in the legislature itself.
0: When you were discussing the real power. Attached to the purse. You said it often comes in conjunction with oversight hearings, right? Appropriators, as well as the subject matter committees, can haul members of the executive branch, the agencies in, in front of them to ask hard questions, to name and shame, to cajole, and, and so on. And that raises the broader question of oversight and how it works. So where does Congress's oversight power come from?
1: So oversight isn't explicitly mentioned in the Constitution, but it's it's been understood from the very beginning to be implicit in the legislative power. The idea being that if Congress has all of these responsibilities, whether we're talking about the responsibility to legislate or appropriate or impeach or confirm nominees or any of those things, to say that it has to do that without being able to gather any of the relevant information would just be absurd. Um, so there's this idea that it sort of has to be there implicitly. There's also the fact that it that was understood to be there for over a century in, in um, uh, English and British parliamentary practice, uh, that the, the sort of early state legislatures had exercised it. So there was sort of historical understanding that it went with what it was to be a legislature as well. Um, so there's been this sort of understanding from the beginning. And, and, you know, the first major use of it is in 1791, when um, the House investigates the defeat of General St. Clair by a coalition of native tribes and, and sort of looking into the reasons for the defeat, and actually demands documents from both the Treasury and the and the War Department. Um, And so, you know, three years, four years after the ratification of the Constitution, you have the sort of first major oversight hearings.
0: One of my favorite stories, I guess it's not oversight per se, but something close to it. One of my favorite stories from the early Congress, I think it's the first Congress. This comes from the famous journal of Senator McClay. William McClay. William McClay, an anti-federalist from Pennsylvania, right? And the, the book is it's, – it's a great read in general because McClay, among other things, hates John Adams and really sort of lampoons him throughout the and book. And he's quite the gossip too. That's right, right. And, and there's one episode in particular that sort of a, that stands out in the book and it's the time that President Washington and Secretary of War Knox, Knox. come to the Senate to get the Senate's advice and consent on a, and I think it was an Indian treaty, right? Mm-hmm. And so Washington and Knox they, they actually appear personally before the Senate. They bring supporting materials and so on. And if I recall correctly, it's been a long time since I read it. The Senate, the the discussion quickly devolves into, I mean, a bit of a mess. Everything from where should President Washington sit to maybe we should send this to a committee. And it's it's a it's a hot and crowded room. And at one point, Washington finally just announces, you know, all this. All this process just defeats my entire purpose in coming here, and he and Knox storm out and swear never to return. And from that moment on, there's always been sort of a a remove between the the president and Congress. And of course, that's, I suppose, proper in a constitution of separated powers. But where I'm going with this is when it comes to questions of oversight, then, since members of the administration technically work for the president rather than Congress, is the question of why would they ever appear? Before Congress, unless they absolutely have to. Now that's kind of a loaded question right now, at this moment of time. We'll get back to that a little bit later about the debates over subpoenas and so on. But to get to that point, let's just start with the basics. Isn't it true that generally there's a norm of compliance with congressional subpoenas,
1: mm-hmm. right? Why is that true, and if so, why do we have it? So actually, before I get to that, I want to. I'm glad you brought up the the sort of uh, example of Washington coming and then and then storming out of the Senate. Because that's actually, uh, you know, that story has been retold a lot. What, what sometimes gets lost in the retelling is that this wasn't just sort of petty internal squabbling in the Senate that sort of drove Washington to distraction and stormed out. What happened was that a group of people who were not happy with, so it wasn't actually a treaty that was being debated, it was instructions to treaty negotiators. Washington came with his proposed instructions. A group of senators led by McClay himself who were not happy with those proposed instructions realized that as long as Washington, right, the American Cincinnatus, the hero of the revolution, as long as he was in the room, they were never going to be able to vote it down. So McClay engaged in what's basically a filibuster. He, he was the one he called for the reading of things out loud. Then he moved to send it to a committee. Then he sort of kept doing all of these things basically to get rid of Washington. Once Washington leaves, the Senate holds a much more substantive debate and actually winds up not voting down, but modifying the uh, instructions that Washington and Knox had brought in with them. So this wasn't an example of sort of, you know, the first example of president and dysfunctional Congress. This was an example of a lot of what I talk about in the book. And I do talk about this uh, incidence in the book. This was an example of the sort of canny use of the sort of small seeming levers of congressional procedure to actually get an outcome that the sort of... They weren't even, uh, you know, Democratic Republicans yet. It's too early for that. But the sort of people who were somewhat opposed to Washington administration policy were able to sort of accomplish that through the use of these of these mechanisms.
0: That's really fascinating, and I have to admit, as my account of it suggests, I I remembered sort of the cartoonish version of the story. I'm glad you you set me straight on that. And and when you do it, I guess it sort of calls to mind how different, inherently different presidential action is than legislative action. I mean, this is just the difference between Federalist 51 and Federalist 70. Federalist 70 is energy in the executive swift, secretive, unified decision-making. The whole point of Congress is to have a deliberative body that isn't swift, that isn't unitary, that's much more uh, deliberative and compromising, right?
1: So, the, I mean, the, fa- the famous formulation by Kenneth Shepsley is uh, Congress is a they, not an it. What I would say, in, in in partial response to that, though, is so is so is the executive branch, right? So we can talk about sort of unity and secrecy in the executive, but we know we don't actually have either of those, right? We have uh, even in in administrations that we tend to regard as well functioning, we know we have sort of rival factions, and those lead to leaks, and then we see administrations like I would suggest the current one where that has just uh, happened to an outsized proportion, right, where you have just factions constantly fighting with each other and leaking being the sort of default move for all of them. So, you know, there are ways in which they're more similar in that regard. But it is true that I think some of what the American people don't often don't like about Congress is we can actually see the processes. Um, But that doesn't mean those same processes aren't happening in secret in other branches.
0: No, that's a fair point. And even in Hamilton himself, say in Federal 76, we were talking about the appointment of officers says, you know, there's... he, wouldn't, he didn't put it this way, but today we'd say, you, you have constructive feedback within the administration and officers sort of pushing back. But I just mean as archetypes, mm-hmm. right, as sort of the constitutional archetypes, the presidency is sort of at a very high level generalization, much more of an it and for particular reasons, and Congress is much more of a they and for particular reasons. But I digress uh, on this point of of, of oversight, though. Yeah. So the basic norm of oversight—how does it work, and where did it come from? You started with the, the very beginning, the, the the hearing over the the, the failed uh, was it Indian battle? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. And so you can you, you sort of have oversight hearings throughout the 19th century, but oversight really picks up in the 20th century. At the same time that the administrative state really begins to to grow uh, significantly, right? So um, increased congressional oversight is a response to uh, increased activity in the executive makes a lot of sense that they would sort of grow in conjunction with one another. And so we see it uh, increasing fairly rapidly for almost the entire 20th century.
0: And it's not just that agencies decided to do more. It's that at the beginning of the story or along the way, Congress delegates more and more power to agencies, gives them more responsibilities and more powers. The agencies then start using those powers and Congress in turn starts to focus more, focus more on oversight
1: Absolutely right. So it's a, yeah. I, I didn't mean to suggest that this is sort of executive
0: branch usurpation. Oh, and I did. And you did. You didn't suggest it. But well, where I'm going with this is that in a way, that when Congress writes a law and delegates some or a lot of power to an agency, in a way, it kind of changes Congress's own incentives going forward. Right? There's now greater need for oversight. There's actually also greater political bang for the buck in oversight. Right? Maybe that's one reason why why it's so popular is that especially now in the C-SPAN era, congressmen are on camera sort of arguing with administration officials, right? It's 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 interesting that I, where I'm going with this is oversight, we have it for a reason, but once we have it, it, it it in and of itself sort of changes the incentives and the habits of Congress, Congress focusing ever more on oversight and ever less on on new legislation. Or
1: am I may, maybe I'm overstating it? I'm not sure there, there are substitutes for one another, but it is true that Congress, you know, there's sort of a... With a lot of these statutes that delegate a lot of power to the executive branch, there's a sort of implicit bargain there, right? We're going to delegate power to you, but we're also going to watch the way you use it. We're going to maintain control over appropriations as one way of reining you in and how you use it. In the case of the Senate, we maintain control over you know, over confirmations, and that's another way we can exercise some control over how you use it. And we can haul you in and just grill you on TV. Um, and that is also a form of control you know unless you're a sociopath you don't like being yelled at uh, publicly and and if you talk to people who've served in administrations of both parties just the fact of of, of the, the fact that they don't want to get called in and yelled at uh, affects how they behave in office is that last
0: part still true sometimes i wonder if maybe members of an administration in times of divided government don't see actually political value in being sort of yelled at right if you're uh, if you're pick whoever you you like i suppose if you are say david addington in the first in the bush administration right sort of coming to congress and defying you know congress's objections and are first refusing to show up and then if you do show up arguing with congress there's some value in that attorney general holder in the obama administration was engaged in a a, a long standoff with the house over what they, what they call it, um fast and, fast and furious and there seemed and he seemed to win within his own political coalition i suspect attorney general holder and and on behalf of president obama probably helped to energize his own their own political base by standing up to congress
1: i think on some issues if you pick your battles you can do that but it's worth noting right that you can you can really until the current administration you can count on one hand from the last two administrations, the people who did that, right? So, in the Bush administration, you've got Addington and you've got uh, Harriet Myers and Josh Bolton. Right. In the Obama administration, you've got Eric Holder and Lois and Lois Lerner. Lerner. Yeah, that's about it. But right? in the Trump administration, um, there's more. In the Trump administration, there's a lot more. And the, the Trump administration, I think, in terms of its attitude towards oversight, is so different in degree as to be different in kind from administrations that have gone before it of both parties. But is it the new normal, maybe? I think the only way to know that is to is to go 10 years into the future and see, right? So there's, you know, there's sort of various ways, you know, political norms, constitutional norms are constantly in flux. And when you have a norm that's not just sort of changing a little bit at the margins, but is openly being sort of flouted, there's a couple different things that could happen, right? One is that the flouting could become the new normal. But the other is that you could have a really strong reaction against it. And it could, in fact, reinforce the pre-existing norm. And so I think with that, as with a lot of other norms that, that the Trump administration has flouted, um, we'll know more after, you know, November 2020, right? We'll know more in terms of whether that election is seen as a reinforcement of Trump's flouting of those norms or a repudiation of it.
0: When we talk about norms in Congress, what are we talking about? We, not necessarily rules, those are written
1: down, but precedents, what else? Well, precedents even, I mean, have to some extent a, a law-like force. I think often when we talk about congressional norms, we're talking about things that are even sort of further removed. We're talking about activity that is compliant with the, the rules of the chamber, you know, compliant with the Constitution, compliant with statutes, compliant with the rules of the chamber, compliant even with the sort of pre- governing precedents, but that nevertheless is seen as uh, pushing the boundaries uh, of what was previously considered to be acceptable in one way or another. So, you know, for example, in the Senate, Even in today's Senate, most things still get done with unanimous consent. One member who really wanted to make a hash of things could refuse unanimous consent to everything and bring the entire functioning of the Senate basically to a halt. There's a sufficiently strong norm against doing that. You know, every now and then a senator will do it for a day because they really want to bring attention to something. So in recent years, we've seen both Rand Paul and Ted Cruz do that for different issues. But that really, really annoys their colleagues of both parties and they tend not to do it. So you know that's that's an example of a norm that is a tremendously powerful norm because a member who was determined to flout that norm consistently really could do a tremendous amount of damage.
0: Now as a lawyer I focused a lot over the years on the Senate's handling of judicial nominees and this seems to be a place where norms have been just steadily eroded or dynamited for a long time and you can pick we we you can pick whatever starting point you'd like by my my preferred framing of it, it starts with Robert Bork's nomination. And then you continue through to the, the early 2000s breakdown on judicial nominations and the use of filibusters, the threatened use of a nuclear option that then ended up becoming a real nuclear option that started with Harry Reid and then Mitch McConnell extended to Supreme Court precedents. We still have some lingering norms, right? The use of holds or blue slips, I suppose,
1: Although that's largely broken down, I don't think Grassley is honoring uh, blue slips from states with two Democratic senators at the moment.
0: Yeah, and by the way, my narrative—I le- I left out the most recent one, which or one of the most recent ones, of course, which was the the Republican Senate's inaction on the Garland nomination. At the time, I wrote about it. Actually, when I was, when you went back in the days when you and I were still in law school in the Bush era, I wrote a piece, my first law review article during the Bush years was on why the Senate did not need to vote on judicial nominees, which nobody cared, The article that nobody cared about until about five seconds after Justice Scalia passed away, at which point suddenly people took interest. And I've, you know, I've, I've, I've argued over time that, that that itself had a precedent in the handling of uh, Johnson's last attempted nominees in 68, but that's obviously hugely contested and a lot of people see it as another sort of flagrant dynamiting of a norm. I guess my point is on focusing on judicial nominations, that's a place replete with norm breakdown. Is that characteristic of norms in Congress right now? Or is it exceptional? Is that an exceptionally bad example?
1: So it's interesting. You said at the, at the very beginning of your description, you said, you know, you can you can choose to date the norm breakdown whenever you want and you chose to date it with Bork, but then you also mentioned 1968. Yep. I think actually the fact that you can, I agree with you, choose to to date it at a lot of different places. Points to the fact that these norms are always in flux. Mm-hmm. That there isn't a that there, there wasn't a before moment where the norm was stable, and then an after moment where it changed. I had a piece in in twenty seventeen in the Harvard Law Review on sort of the history of judicial confirmations, trying to make this argument, looking at the fact that basically at every point, I, I in the for the purposes of the piece, I, I sort of started around two thousand one with a sort of detailed reading of the basically all the confirmation battles from two thousand one through the the Gorsuch confirmation, pointing out that. At every step of the way, people of both parties were describing things that happened as unprecedented. Mm -hmm. Um, That was the most common word that they used to describe what was going on. Everything is unprecedented. And then sort of, that's like the first half of the piece. And the second half of the piece is actually going back to the uh, and tracing the entire history of uh, both obstructionism in the Senate more broadly and judicial confirmations uh, uh, more narrowly and suggesting that there's depending on how you tell the story, there's precedent for all of it. And there's precedent in the John Tyler administration for refusing to vote on nominees and for um, uh, basically uh, holding up and obstructing every nominee of a president you don't like.
0: Yeah, I think based on Congressional Research Service data, there was, the number was 30 something nominees who never received a vote. And of course, then you can parse those and say, well, some of them were renominated later, some and were confirmed and so on. So that's that's true. But
1: you've got you definitely have nineteenth century examples of nineteenth century Supreme Court nominees who are not voted on because the seat is being held for a subsequent president.
0: But some norms are steadier than others. That's right. True. Even if even if this one is in flux, even if this norm is in flux, and all norms are somewhat in flux, this one's more in flux than others.
1: Um, I think that's probably right. Is that, is, that, is that a fair way of putting it? What, it's, what? Been a, it's been a site of sort of special contestation over the over the last several decades. I think that's right. Yeah.
0: Well. I do want to save a little time for the the big issue right now in Congress, which we're recording this in mid-November, right before Thanksgiving. And so we just wrapped up, uh, the House Intelligence Committee just wrapped up hearings on impeachment. And just uh, the day before we taped this, a federal district judge in Washington issued a decision uh, ordering former White House Counsel Don McGahn to comply with a, a House... Which committee? I mean, I don't expect you to know. Um, what a house, a house subpoena, on to appear. How should we think about Congress's power to impeach? Very simple question.
1: I think most broadly, you know, we should think about it as an important way in which Congress uh, maintains some control over the over the other branches of government. We should think about it as one of the sort of big weapons in the congressional arsenal, one that has been very seldom actually used to remove anyone from office. There have been only eight convictions upon impeachment in American history, all of federal judges, but perhaps one that that um, has, again, a lot more of an impact in the shadows than, than it does uh, uh, sort of out in the open. That is to say, there are certain things that presidents, judges would never would never do because they know they'd be impeached. Um, so I think we should think of it as a really big weapon, even if it's not one that gets brought out very often.
0: In these really. debates, and we saw this during the, the Clinton impeachment, people reach for metaphors about what the House or the Senate is doing, right? The Senate famously sits as almost as a court I like to resist the judicial metaphors here. That's what I was asking. And and, and by the way, the House sometimes is framed in terms of
1: almost a grand jury. Why do you resist those metaphors? Well, I mean, I, I, they're helpful to a, to a limited extent in the sense that there's something more familiar that is this sort of two-step process of accusation and then determination and then followed by punishment of some kind. On the other hand, I think they have the potential to lead us astray. They have the potential to make it sound like the sort of right procedures to be followed are the kinds of procedures we would expect in a courtroom, like the right considerations for uh, whether we're talking about representatives or senators are the kinds of considerations that they would have as grand jurors or jurors. And none of that is the case. The, um, there's a reason that this was given to the House and the Senate and not to officials with more remove from the voters like like the Supreme Court or something like that. And that is because it is meant to be a sort of differently structured process. It's meant to be a process that takes into account what the public thinks about the performance in office of the person who's being impeached or potentially impeached. It's a process that is meant to, I think, be more open-ended and more flexible. It's not meant to be governed by sort of the strict rules of procedure, of, of evidence, of the, you know, the standards of proof. I don't think any of that has a place in the impeachment proceedings. Or rather, it only has a place to the extent that members of the House and members of the Senate think it's appropriate in that context. It's not the kind of thing that should, that should be understood as given to them in advance in the way that it's given in advance to grand jurors or jurors in a, in a criminal trial. There's so much
0: debate around the meaning of the constitutional phrase, high crimes and misdemeanors, or treason, bribery, high crimes and misdemeanors. And it's often said that ultimately that, means that, that phrase means whatever the Senate decides it means, which is true in a sense, I suppose, by saying other high crimes and misdemeanors, the category is pretty broad and the Senate has a lot of discretion to sort of choose what fits into the category, what doesn't, and also what might fit into the category, but for prudential reasons doesn't merit impeachment or removal at the same time, the phrase has to have some kind of meaning. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been in the Constitution at all, right? The framers could have just said, presidents can be impeached, here's the process, and they wouldn't have set a standard. How would you advise either members of Congress to go about thinking about that term? and how would you, Or how would you advise the public to think about what that term means?
1: So I think the, the first thing is that it should be understood as something more than just normal policy disagreement at the Constitutional Convention. It originally just read uh, treason or bribery. And then there was worry that, that that wouldn't capture everything you might want to impeach and remove for. So George Mason then says, well, what about maladministration? And Madison comes back and says, well, that's that's sort of too low a bar. How about high crimes and misdemeanors? Right. Madison's uh, worried
0: that maladministration will turn us into a parliament,
1: a parliamentary government. Yeah. So, you know, it means something more than policy disagreements. I think one reason I like to resist the judicial analog is because it's easy to hear, you know, crimes and misdemeanors and think that it has to be a violation of the criminal law. I think that's uh, clearly mistaken. I think there are all kinds of things, first of all, that are violations of the criminal law that we should not understand to be impeachable. But perhaps more importantly, all kinds of things that ought to be understood as impeachable that are not violations of the criminal law, right? So suppose the president just refused to do the job, right? Just went on a permanent vacation, i would think that would be impeachable even though not in any sense a violation of the criminal law so i think we ought to think of it as something that that points to sort of abuse of the office in some particular way the way i would pose it if someone you know a member of the house member of the senate asked me sort of how how should i think about this i would say actually the best way to think of it is do you think all things considered this person deserves to remain in office i think that's the best way of sort of cashing that out and then i think the protection against it being used too easily is not actually people thinking about, well, what does high crimes and misdemeanors mean? It's the fact that you need two-thirds of the Senate to convict. So you have to, you know, whatever standard they're internally applying, you have to convince two-thirds of the Senate, except in highly unusual circumstances. That means you're gonna need uh, cross-partisan buy-in. And that's a pretty good way to make sure it's not just about policy disagreement or not about something uh, sort of too minor to actually warrant removal from office.
0: Well, let's finish with two quick questions. First, you now have you've already published two books. This one's still close in the rearview mirror. Uh, do you have any upcoming projects or issues you f- you're focused on that you're comfortable sort of highlighting?
1: So I have a I have a paper I've uh, sort of just finished uh, or not just finished. I'm, I'm just finishing working on. I hope to to be truly done within the next few months looking at the sort of communicative and performative uses of the tools of congressional oversight. So actually, you often hear oversight hearings criticized as a political theater or a circus or something like that. And so I try to actually take that seriously and say, well, you know, actually, I, I like theater. So what does it mean to use these kinds of tools theatrically? What does it mean to use hearings performatively and communicatively and try to pick sort of examples from across history, but also to think explicitly? You know, I have a section of the paper where I talk in terms of scripting, casting, costuming, uh, scenery, all of these sort of choices that are are sort of theatrical terms, but that you can actually think about congressional hearings in this way, and then think about what that means for how these hearings are being used by members to try to sway the public and and what effects that can have. Well, we'll look forward to that. One last question.
0: Once listeners have read your books, if you could recommend the next book for them to read on Congress by somebody other than you, what would it be? And we'll concede up front... Obviously, there's a number of books you could choose. I'm putting you on the spot. But off the top of your head, if you could recommend a good book for people to read on Congress, what would it be?
1: Well, this is tough just because, there, are, as, as you say, there are so many. I think one of the truly best books on Congress in recent years uh, is a book by Francis Lee called Insecure Majorities about the ways in which in recent decades, control of Congress, control of each house of Congress has flipped more often than than it had in the past, and what that has meant in terms of increasing polarization and, and the way that the parties the way the parties interact with one another within Congress.
0: That is genuinely with uh, in all honesty, the exact same recommendation I would have <laughs> It's a phenomenal book. Well, Josh Chapitz, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to Thanks for having me. Unpresidential. One of the students asked me, you know, what do you think about Scalia's view of capping tuition at a lower level? And I I said, well, I'm going to give you a candid answer. But the problem is there is a suspended mic. There's literally a microphone in the room hanging from the ceiling. And so I said, if my office is cleared out at the end of the day, this will be your fault.